0: Hey, everyone. So fun little uh, behind the scenes blood and wine fact. Generally, we record these episodes like Wednesday or Thursday the week before for them to come out the next Tuesday. Yeah, this week that was not happening. (laughs)
1: Y'all can all guess what we have been doing since Tuesday. We literally haven't turned off the TV. I think I slept a couple of hours,
0: but I moved. I moved my work from home setup. From my desk and my, like, office setup, straight into the living room, TV on, on mute. I don't think my TV's been on that much since I bought it. Yeah, we had contingency plans of, like, okay, well, if we're recording and we get news, well, we're just gonna have a big, long break. But it is Saturday night now, after the winner has been projected, after President-elect Biden... And Vice President elect Harris gave their speeches. So we're, we're being timely.
1: Well, and you know, we all knew that this was going to be a long week, that it was going to take time with the number of mail in ballots that there are. Because, I mean, also, don't forget, we're in the middle of a pandemic and it's getting really bad right now. So, yeah, a lot of people didn't go stand in line if they were able they mailed in their votes. And well, we had one candidate telling people to do that, we had one candidate saying, don't do that, it's going to be riddled with fraud. So, yeah, I mean, Red Mirage totally happened. Just saying.
0: Yeah. Also, if you just think about timing-wise, I don't know about y'all, maybe this is just a me problem, but I know when I get my mail, and, you know, opening all my envelopes, looking at my stuff, it takes me, like, 15 minutes to go through, like, six pieces of mail. So... <laughs>
1: Well, and also, these people are doing more than just going through mail. They're having to look at every single ballot. So yeah, shout out to everyone who did all of that. That is not fun work.
0: No. And also, shout out to every single person who voted, if you voted in person, by mail, absentee, all the other terms that we've learned (laughs) over the past week. (laughs) For all the people across the nation who made your voice heard... Awesome. Kudos. Thank you.
1: Yes, thank you to everyone who voted. No matter who you voted for, you you voted. You all know who we voted for. We're obviously very happy today. We're excited to see what's, what's moving forward. History is in the making right now.
0: Yes, it is. But this is not a political podcast. There are many wonderful ones out there. This is not one. This is a podcast where we drink and talk about true crime, which there's this one like meme or Facebook post or Twitter post or some kind of something in social media I've seen that was like, I can't wait for this stressful week to get over so I can go back to light enjoying things like watching horrible true crime documentaries about gruesome murder. (laughs) And I'm like, same, but podcast. (laughs)
1: Yes. And speaking of, who are we? Oh, yeah. This is Blood and Wine. I'm Brittany.
0: And I'm Tyler. And we are, in fact, a true crime podcast. As our name suggests. Also, I'm just going to say, with the amount of wine I've had this past week, damn, we could have filmed like five episodes.
1: Yeah, no joke. It was like, I drank like it was election night every night. So there you go.
0: (laughs) My liver is going to recuperate over the next few days.
1: I know. After today, I'm going to be like, I need a break. (laughs) I'm going to have some water. I think my liver is going to start crying as soon as we open the wine here in a minute. (laughs)
0: probably but you know what it could deal because we are back it is episode 131 and we have some wine to show y'all but before we get into wine before we even get into topic Brittany, what about patreon tell everyone about that
1: yes if you haven't heard yet please go check out our patreon we've got murder minis it's where you guys can support us it's we're so appreciative of it it helps keep this podcast going we also have other fun things like Zoom conversations with us and live events with us or getting to taste special, like, wine that we opened and just show you. But, like, I'm just saying, Patreon is the place to be, so be sure to check it out.
0: Also, make sure you are subscribed to us on whatever, wherever you find po- your podcast, wherever you listen to it. We are on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Pandora, what is it, Stitcher. Podbean, all the things, something like player FM. No, I actually think that's just, I don't actually know what player FM is, but (laughs) we might be there. So anyway, however you're listening to our podcast, make sure you hit that subscribe button or follow button. That way you'll get notified and automatic downloads of our episodes every time we release them on Tuesdays.
1: Yes. So with that, let me tell you guys what we're going to be talking about today. We have done these episodes, and we've gone backwards and forwards and all the ways around, but now we've finally made it to the last decade, one that I guess next year, we'll have to wait until 2021 to do another one of these, but we will be talking about murders from the 2010s.
0: And to be honest, I totally thought we already had.
1: I think that's because when we did the 2000s, I'm pretty sure they bled into the after the fact, like into the 10s.
0: Yeah. I don't know. But yeah, here we are, here- 2010 murders.
1: Here we go. We've got some cases for you today, but before we do that, we're going to drink this wine because we're not only recording today, we're also celebrating.
0: I have a white wine today, so I'm going to hop, skip, jump over to the fridge to go grab my wine.
1: All right, hurry up.
0: And we're back.
1: It took you long enough.
0: Okay. Um, We sat down at the same time because I noticed you also had to run to the fridge to get yours. <laughs> so do not even.
1: I know. I'm just kidding. I'm messing with you. I have a red, but I have a wine fridge and it was in there.
0: I know. I was with you and got the wine fridge at a thrift store. <laughs> Tyler let me have the wine fridge. <laughs> I did because I'm a good brother. So she got the $20 wine fridge. It's fine.
1: Yes. Bye. But Tyler, tell us about your white wine.
0: Yes, so mine doesn't have a year and doesn't have a lot of English on it. It is the Rilento Inzolia Sicilia from Sicily, Italy. And I have never heard of the Inzolia grape or varietal. So Inzolia, or Ansonica, it's a white Italian wine grape that is primarily in the western part of Sicily, where it is a lot of times used to make Marsala wine. The grape is noted for its nutty aroma, and in Tuscany is where it's known as the Ansonica. But uh, this one's Sicilian, so it's Inzolia. And the winemakers describe this as pleasantly refreshing. This wine is light-bodied and full of nuance. Notes of lime, jasmine, green apple. A sip alone transports you to the Sicilian coast. This smoothly pairs with seafood dishes or stands alone as an aperitif. And... Pretty much everything described this as a great alternative to a Pinot Cretio or Sauvignon Blanc. And I got this one for like eight bucks at Total Wine. So really affordable. One of the things I love about, I use the Instacart app for like most of my grocery shopping and wine shopping. And when you go to Total Wine on that, it has like different categories and sections. So I went into white wine and then just started looking at like other whites or like, Great varietals I'd never heard of to pick a couple. And this is how I found this one.
1: That's really awesome because I know that store is so big that it can be overwhelming. And if you're walking and you're like, I want to find an other white, but I couldn't tell you what it is. That's not easy to find because the the aisles are like Chardonnay, Sauvignon Blanc, Italy, France, Bordeaux. Like, they're separated that mm-hmm. way, not... Although I think there is an area that says other reds. But still, there are other reds all throughout.
0: Oh, yeah. Like, usually when I'm at a grocery store or at a store in person, I'll go to, like, different countries to find different grapes I've never heard of. But super easy on the app. And so really excited about this. It sounds like the perfect seafood wine and makes me really want some grilled scallops, like wood grilled scallops. You don't like scallops? I
1: I really don't. They're They're...
0: fish marshmallows. We've discussed this, (laughs) I think.
1: Probably, but you're the one that calls them fish marshmallows,
0: so I'm surprised you do like them. Yeah, I like them, but I want like three and that's it. Because then I start, you know, wanting to blow bubbles, but... That's bubblegum, not marshmallow. What are
1: you talking about? I'm just picturing you blowing bubbles with scallops and
0: it's really gross. Oh, I bet you some Food Network chef is going to make like a deconstructed savory s'more with like, I don't know, some kind of replacement for a graham cracker, a mole sauce, and a scallop. That would actually be bomb as fuck, though. (laughs) Anyway... I don't know what I'm talking about. I'm going to go open my wine. I clearly need it. And it's twist off. Perfect. But it's this nice like very pale almost green tinted white.
1: It is. That's a very light color. And it's still really light and it's green. Mm-hmm. You're right. It's not it's not that deep yellow like What are you smelling?
0: A little bit of floral. And some melon. The bottle also on the back mentions mango, melon, and jasmine.
1: Oh, well, there you go. There's your floral and mango yeah. melon. Mm.
0: Ooh, it smells good. Okay. I'm so ready to drink this. So tell me about your wine so we can cheers and I can get this into me.
1: I'm doing the 2018 Aristotle Petit Syrah from Monterey, California. This is a bottle that literally called to my art history soul. Like, not only is it called Aristotle, but on the label, there's... And it's a really famous work of art, The School of Athens by Raphael. He did that in the Italian Renaissance, like between, like, like early 1500s. It's old as shit, but it's got like all the philosophers on it and it's, it's amazing. It's one of those pieces that most people have seen. You probably don't recognize it by name unless you have studied it, um, or just really like art, but it's beautiful. And so I saw that and I was like, um, 20-year-old Brittany needs this wine.
0: 20-year-old Brittany can't drink that wine because she's not yet 21.
1: But she can in a year. <laughs> <laughs> no. So this one, it, it was about $15 from Whole Foods. And it just sounds like a really, really good red wine. It's got notes of blackberry and plum oaky and vanilla and then there's also touches of spice like pepper and cinnamon so i'm going to open this up because i want it immediately this one is not a twist off it's a regular opening remember was it the last time we recorded when i
0: when it split you split the cork yes yeah
1: i split the cork i break glass i'm like a little bit afraid but not today this is going well I didn't pull it as hard because I got nervous right at that moment because I remembered.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I was like, that was kind of a weak pop," but all right. It it
1: was because I got nervous. It has been a long time since I've had a Petit I honestly can't remember the last time I had one. Has it
0: been seven (laughs) hours and 15 days?
1: Which song is that again?
0: It's Sinead O'Connor. Oh, yeah. Nothing compares to you, but a you. Damn
1: it. Okay, I got so distracted. I brought my aerator and I was going to use it. <laughs> yeah, okay. Well. You guys, so hang on a second. Let me put this thing in here. I'm going to top off my glass because I want you to hear what these sound like. This is one of those aerators <laughs> that it breathes for your wine. And you It sounds
0: like you're breathing with a puncture wound in your <laughs> chest.
1: You put it, I have one of the ones that you put like directly in the wine bottle and it sounds like <laughs> this.
0: Yeah, breathing with a puncture wound.
1: Mine's not like as loud as some of them can be.
0: Uh, yeah, mine goes. And I'm like, do you need help?
1: So half of my wine glass has breathed and the other hasn't so we'll see it's you know there you go are you ready to cheers i'm ready to cheers
0: i'm so ready to (laughs) cheers and drink this wine all
1: right cheers
0: cheers Mm -hmm. Mm.
1: okay but tyler geez apparently you're enjoying this wine will you please enlighten the rest of us
0: okay so its first half is like i'm drinking a like fresh squeezed lemonade
1: oh shit that's not what i would expect
0: no, but like without the sweetness, but it has that like fresh, like lemon zest kind of tart brightness, and it ends a little more floral on the back, which I feel like most floral wines—it's more of like an upfront. Yeah. No, this one ends with it. Oh my god, I am so into this wine. I want to go to Sicily when they okay. Usually I read wine labels for filth when they're like, one sip will transport you. No, this transported me to the Sicilian coast. I, I myself have been read.
1: I am excited to try that wine at some point. I feel like literally I need to like write down a list of all the wines you have and go try them.
0: Yeah, I'm really good at picking out wines. It's <laughs> kind of my thing.
1: Well, I'm really good at picking out wines too. Let me tell you about this one. This one definitely has dark fruits on the nose and also baking spices. And when you drink it, there that's when you get the vanilla and you can pick out blackberry and plum and a little bit of cinnamon. I'm not really tasting the pepper yet. And also when it comes to tannins, they're very light. So this is a nice, easy drinking wine that is more on the medium to full body. It's pretty full, like you don't see through this at all. It's like
0: dark. Oh no, she she dark.
1: I highly recommend this. This is a good wine that has those nice fruit flavors, but they're not overpowering. Like I don't feel like I'm drinking something super sweet like a red blend. So Aristotle, thank you. This one's solid.
0: Ooh, also I'm getting a touch of macadamia nut on the very end. That's the other thing. That's weird. How do you pick that out? Because when I eat white chocolate chip macadamia nut cookies, I pick the macadamia nuts out and eat them separately.
1: I'm thinking about one of those cookies now, and it just sounds really it's good. so
0: fucking good.
1: Would you say yeah. it's a good combo or a good, like, Sauvignon Blanc, Pinot Grigio in between?
0: Oh, 100%. It's very... Good. It's, like, flavored notes. I would say lead more Pinot Grigio, but its brightness and smoothness is much more Sauvignon Blanc. That's what I mostly turns me off from Pinot Grigio, is it doesn't have the lightness and brightness. Yeah. It's no blocks do.
1: Okay, we have our wine. Tyler, what crime are you going to tell us about that happened in
0: the 2010s? The case I'm doing is the murder of Mackenzie Cowell. And the sources I used, an article from Wikipedia, the murder of Mackenzie Cowell, and an article from the Wenatchee World newspaper by Jefferson Robbins. Wenatchee is a town I have been to. It is very small, and there is a river that you can raft down. It's in Washington State.
1: Okay, I was about to be like, where is it?
0: It's my favorite river rafting experience, just saying. So anyway, Mackenzie. In early 2010, Mackenzie, she's 17 years old. She lived in Orondo, Washington, and she's a senior at Wenatchee High School. She's also a member of, like, the school's dance team. She worked as a model and was also studying cosmetology at the Wenatchee Academy of Hair Design in Wenatchee. So she's busy. High school, the academy, she's a model, she's on the dance team. She's killing it.
1: She's doing so many different things.
0: On February 9th of 2010, just a little bit after 3pm, Mackenzie went missing. She was last seen on surveillance video at the academy, uh, leaving. She was walking to her car and driving away. She had told her classmates, "Like, oh, I'll be back in like fifteen minutes." I don't know if she gave any kind of excuse, like, "Oh, I'm going to go run and grab Starbucks" or anything like that. But she was like, oh, "I'll be back in fifteen minutes." So no one was really worried.
1: It's really creepy to me when you can see someone's last known whereabouts in surveillance. Mm-hmm there's always something so eerie about it because surveillance is like this very like grainy and kind of like skippy just you know what i mean not your (laughs) cat not your cat (laughs) but like the quality is not there which don't you think at this point we need a little bit better security cameras that's
0: completely different conversation but i mean like but let's be real look at like nest cam footage and you're like oh Shit, that's great quality. And then you see these, like, store surveillance footage, and you're like, was this recorded on a shoebox in 1952?
1: Pinhole cameras. Have you ever done it? Have have you ever taken a photo with a pinhole camera? Because it's actually the coolest thing ever.
0: No, but I really want to.
1: I made one in photography class. Super side note, but literally it's like a pinhole in a can, and you put the paper in the can, and it takes a photo. And my brain still can't completely understand how things like that work, but that's photography. And I don't understand it, even though I've had multiple classes.
0: Uh, Yeah, same. I don't understand photography or how... I don't even understand how eyes work. I was like, oh, the light bouncing off and your brain just, like, knows how to make it... A picture? Sight. I know. Like, yeah. But then I also am like, when are we going to get fucking cameras in our, our it eyes as, good as our eyes no um, <laughs> i was just thinking of well like, kind of uh,
1: yeah because i'm on i'm on the same f- train thought because like you see something beautiful and you take a photo and you're like oh god that doesn't look anything like it but if you could just be like blink and take a photo
0: see my thing is when you go outside and you're like oh my god the moon is huge tonight i'm gonna take <laughs> a picture and you look at the photo and you're like well, that's the smallest little pinprick i've ever seen in the world <laughs>
1: That's what she said. And it's not even
0: in the world. Oh, she's mean.
1: <laughs> I'm sorry. Wow. It was so right there. But okay, <laughs> sorry, I, I digress. I derailed us a little bit. So she left, and she was caught on surveillance, and then she no one knew where she was.
0: Yeah, she disappeared. And right around the time that she left the academy, she sent a text to her boyfriend that just said, like, hey, what's up? So, that was it. It wasn't even like a, hey, I'll be there in a couple minutes or anything. It was just, hey, what's up? So, probably a, she's been working with clients all day. This is, she's run into, I don't know, go do something. It's
1: her opportunity. And
0: it's like, oh, I have my phone. I'm not, like, I'm not elbow deep in someone's hair. But that was also the last time she was known to have used her phone, was that text. At about 5.40 that evening... Mackenzie's dad, he tried to contact her, but all of his calls just went straight to voicemail. Mm, So they're kind of like, yeah, they're kind of worried. Like, okay, it's still 540. You know, maybe she's out doing something. But after she missed her 8 p.m. curfew, because again, she's 17. She has a curfew. And they were like, okay, something's up. Something is not okay. And they were worried.
1: Can we just like make it a rule that you never turn your phone off? That way it's like truly a signal that something is not right. Like, I can't stand it when people turn their phones off and you can't reach them. Because my head automatically goes to, I mean, something like probably what you're about to tell us. And so, can we just make it a universal rule? Don't turn your phone off.
0: Yeah, the second I call someone and and I haven't heard from them and it goes straight to voicemail, my brain instantly goes to, they wrecked their car, they're in a ravine and dead.
1: Full on panic mode.
0: Oh, 100%. But I also know I am the pers- type of person who will put my phone on do not disturb if people are texting me and I just want to take a nap.
1: Mine goes on do not disturb every night when I go to bed and like, yes, I miss things. I mean, for example, it's on it right now because we're recording, but that's different than being off.
0: Yeah, but um, her phone was going straight to voicemail. Later that night, so her family does not know where she is. It's now nighttime. They're worried. And Wenatchee is, like, central Washington, like, still in kind of the foothills of the Cascade Mountains on the other side from Seattle. So it's, like, mountainous, foresty, kind of small-towny. Like, it's... I'm sure they are thinking similarly to my thought of, oh my god, what if she crashed her car into a ravine or something? Right. But that's not what happened, because that night, a homeowner in Chelan County reported an abandoned car that was near his driveway. Police traced the car's registration to Mackenzie's dad, and when they called him to be like, hey, we had a car registered to you in Chelan County, which is, you know, like 40 miles away from where you live. And he was like, that's Mackenzie's car, and Mackenzie's missing. In the car, police found her purse, some of her clothes, but her debit card and her cell phone were missing, and so was she. She wasn't anywhere near the car. And according to police, there was only one pair of footprints that was found at the scene anywhere near the car. So the Chelan County Sheriff's Office, they started investigating Mackenzie's disappearance, and they started by using a helicopter to search the area where her car was found. Because again, it's kind of forested, remote, you know, maybe they were her footprints, and she'd, for some reason, ended up there, left her car, and was in the woods somewhere. Search warrants were issued for her phone records and all of her social media activity. And then the sheriff requested the FBI to help with the investigation because they could not they could not find Mackenzie.
1: That's just so crazy when someone is so like you are just having such trouble tracking them down and tracking their steps down that you immediately get the FBI involved. It's like, oh man, we need the big guns immediately.
0: Well, and especially when it's a missing persons case. Right. Because this could be hours ticking by that they're dying, but they're still alive and could be saved.
1: Missing persons cases are always so scary because of exactly that. That you know every moment could be a moment that you could save them.
0: Yeah. Unfortunately, though, that wasn't the case for Mackenzie. On February 13th in the afternoon, so... Pretty much almost to the hour of four days after she disappeared, Mackenzie's body was found on the banks of the Columbia River near Quincy, Washington, which is a town about 20 miles from Wenatchee. So her car is 40 miles away. Her body is found 20 miles away. Suspicious.
1: Very. All the different locations are very suspicious.
0: She was found, she was fully clothed, her feet were in the water, so she was like on the edge of the river. And pretty much the only thing next to her, there was like a vacant house that was for sale like 50 yards away, but that was kind of it.
1: So she's literally in the middle of nowhere.
0: Yeah, I mean, Quincy is kind of like a resort on the river town, but it's not a big one or a hugely popular one. I mean, it's like small town resort kind of thing. So they performed an autopsy on her and they found her cause of death was strangulation and also stab wounds to the neck. She also had blunt force trauma to her head.
1: That's such a violent death.
0: Stab wounds in the neck, like being stabbed in the neck. I don't know. I always just like your neck and your throat are like some of the most vulnerable parts of your body. Right.
1: No, this was very violent.
0: And the killer had apparently also tried to cut off one of her arms after she died.
1: What the fuck? Why?
0: I I have no fucking idea. The knife that was used to kill her was found because it was still stuck into her shoulder. Like the killer had stabbed her in the neck and then stabbed her in the shoulder and left it there.
1: Literally, someone who clearly doesn't give two shits—they leave the murder weapon there. Yeah in her god i want to know who this monster is
0: uh yeah investigators did also find that there had been no evidence though that she'd been sexually assaulted so the investigation it was headed by the mackenzie cowell task force it's just what they named themselves and they were like a multi-agency police group assembled after her body was found and they knew this wasn't a missing persons case this is murder. And McKenzie's case was the largest multi-agency investigation in the Wenatchee area since an attempted serial bombing in 1997. So this is huge.
1: Yeah, this has been a long time since they had had a case of this magnitude.
0: Oh yeah. I mean, it's police from multiple different cities, multiple counties, there's an FBI agent, there's a couple officials from the U.S. Immigration and Customs, I mean, it's a bit, when they say multi-agency, they mean multi-agency. Yep,
1: huge joint effort.
0: And police wound up interviewing over 800 people throughout the investigation. So the first place they looked, which is, I mean, the first place most people would look, was at her boyfriend, Joaquin Villasano.
1: Yeah, I feel like the mate is always the first suspect.
0: Yeah. They also looked at her mom's boyfriend, Joey Fisher, so, according to police, Villasano he'd failed a polygraph when he asked if he knew anything that happened to Mackenzie. If he knew what had happened, where she was. He failed that polygraph. Oh, shit. And Fisher had allegedly gotten into a big argument with Mackenzie just the day before she'd gone missing. But both of them were later completely cleared by police. Another thing that really, again, shows how polygraphs really don't mean anything.
1: They're really not reliable. I don't know why they're still used. It's a scare tactic at this point, for sure.
0: I mean, a hundred percent. The next lead in the case came from a woman named Liz Reed. She was a college student and a police informant and a former drug dealer. And she told police that two drug dealers, Sam Cuevas and Emmanuel Seros, had murdered Mackenzie in just a case of mistaken identity. Apparently, they thought Mackenzie was an informant, and they murdered her. And Reed said that she saw a snuff film of the murder, and that Cuevas told her, I choked that bitch to shut her up. Also, Liz Reed was able to describe the murder weapon before it was even made public, the knife. And she also gave police a ring that she said had belonged to Mackenzie, because apparently Ceros had sent her to the murder site to find the ring.
1: This is really interesting. Like, she's clearly pretty involved in this if he's sending her back there. And, like, cause she just saw a film of it happen. And then they're like, uh, go back to the murder site. She lost a ring. Which, honestly, I'm thinking if this murder was as violent as it was, they're not going to notice a missing ring.
0: Yeah, it's... I'm very... It's very suspect because, again, I don't know how close she was to these other guys. I mean, like, she was also a former drug dealer, now informant. So they could have been, like, her best friends. or That is true. Uh, you know, maybe one of them was her boyfriend. And so them showing her the film and telling her all about it and being like, oh, shit, I think she lost a ring. Go get it. I I don't know.
1: One of these things that I feel like in my head, I think it's like the dumbest thing ever, but also people definitely do it, is when people will commit a murder and then tell other people about it and show them videos. My initial thought is like, there is no way that, no, that's stupid. No one would do that. But the reality is people do. People like to brag about that shit. And like, you you see what I'm saying? Like, it's one of those things that I'm like, oh, no one would ever do that. But the reality is not that.
0: People do all the time. And yeah, that's, I don't understand at all.
1: Like, maybe start out with, like, not killing people.
0: I mean, that too. That, you know, that's, I think, a good first step, is just don't murder. The thing about this ring, though, none of Mackenzie's family members recognized it as something that Mackenzie owned. They're like, I've never seen that ring in my entire life. Uh Uh-uh. She made it up? Reed then later retracted her claim of seeing a video of the murder. So she's like, you know, you know, I said I saw a snuff film that they had made. A fr- I didn't. I lied. That ring, not hers. I don't understand why people do that. So, I mean, because of all of this, police started questioning her credibility. And they're like, mm, can we even believe you? And when they interviewed Cuevas and Zeros, the two of them had alibis. They had witness statements and they also had phone records that showed they weren't anywhere in the area when Mackenzie disappeared.
1: Okay, so what does she actually know? And, or is she just making shit up for fun?
0: Pretty much at this point, the investigators are like, Alright, these two guys didn't do it. So who did? It's not her boyfriend. It's not her mom's boyfriend. It's not these two drug dealers. Who is it? Well, they'd gotten several tips about a guy named Christopher Scott Wilson. He's a 29-year-old guy, and he was a classmate of Mackenzie's at the Academy of Hair Design. One of the tips they received happened in August of that year. So, like, what, five months after her murder? Six months? Right. They received a letter that claimed Wilson had this obsession with death, dead bodies, and serial killers. And... One of Wilson's classmates told police that he used to work in funeral homes and that he had said he liked to cut people up. That's a little much. That's a lot much. On October 6th, Wilson was arrested on suspicion of second-degree murder, and they held him on $1 million of bail. And they were able to arrest him because they were able to match his DNA to DNA they found on the duct tape that was near Mackenzie's body. So, like, his, I don't know, skin cells or whatever the shit was on the duct tape that had been on her. They were able to link him to her murder, or at least some part of it.
1: Yeah, he was clearly involved in some way for his DNA to
0: be there. Investigators also discovered that Wilson had left the beauty school right after Mackenzie did on the day she disappeared. So she was like, hey, y'all, I'll be back in 15 minutes. Walks out. And then just a couple minutes later, Wilson's like... I'll also be back.
1: If it's not a time that people are normally leaving, that's really suspicious.
0: That's really suspicious. And then also, three separate witnesses reported seeing a man who matched Wilson's description near where the car had been abandoned. You know, the spot that was like 40 miles outside of the town where she lived. Three different people saw him near that.
1: Okay, it was so far away. Very suspicious.
0: And kind of the last... uh, nail in the coffin for him i guess when investigators searched his apartment they also found Mackenzie's blood
1: oh my god and he was her classmate
0: yeah so prosecutors upgraded his charge from second degree to first degree murder in april of 2011 because looking at everything how he looked like he left the school to follow her kidnap her take her to his apartment murder her that was all premeditated And so, if convicted, his sentence was set to be 20 to 26 years in prison. Before the trial began, a plea deal was given to him, which he'd get a prison sentence of about six and a half years in exchange for pleading guilty to first-degree manslaughter, but he rejected it.
1: I was about to be really pissed. That is barely a sentence.
0: Yeah, I... I'll go into the court a little bit, but I was very surprised that he would be given a plea deal for first-degree manslaughter and six and a half years on everything they have.
1: I don't understand why that deal was, they were attempting to make that deal.
0: So, Wilson's defense team, it was led by a Seattle attorney named John Henry Brown, which that name might sound familiar, Because he'd previously represented very high-profile defendants like Colton Harris-Moore and Ted Bundy. He got Bundy's defense attorney.
1: You know, sometimes I forget that, like, yeah, that feels like it was a long time ago, but it wasn't as long ago. As in, some of these people are still working.
0: Yeah, John Henry Brown is, like, in his 70s or something. So his argument for Wilson's defense was that McKenzie's blood had been apparently planted... In Wilson's apartment, because there apparently wasn't a ton of blood that was found. And he was like, look, if she was stabbed there in her neck and, like, shoulder and shit, there'd be a lot more blood.
1: But what if she wasn't stabbed there and it was just, like, transfer?
0: See, that's kind of what I was thinking. Like, what if it was blood that either got on him after the murder or, like, maybe he took her there. I don't know, like, hit her or something. Like, she bled a little, Like, I didn't really see any arguments that said she had definitely been stabbed at the apartment, so I'm not sure. Also, what if he'd laid down some, like, plastic tarps and only a little bit of it didn't hit the tarps or something? I don't know.
1: Yeah, I mean, he could have gone full Dexter, just not as well as the fake character of Dexter.
0: Yeah. And also, his lawyer, he wanted to also show some other possible candidates who could have murdered Mackenzie. So the judge wound up ruling that the defense was allowed to present evidence that would implicate Cuevas and Cerros, the two drug dealers from earlier, as the killers. Even though, again, they had alibis, witness statements, and like phone records that didn't put them near the kidnapping. So I'm not sure what his argument is. Like, oh, well, Wilson kidnapped her, but then they took over and murdered her. Like, I don't... I'm not understanding his his train of thought. There was also some evidence about Wilson that the judge ruled the prosecution wasn't allowed to bring up. And that included Wilson's previous work history at the funeral homes, his tattoo of Hannibal Lecter, and his online activity on, like, different serial killer forums, I can kind of understand some of the things. The serial killer forum stuff, I'm like, "Mm, it would depend what he wrote. But if it's serial killer forums like Murderpedia kind of stuff, where it's, you know, stuff that people who are into true crime might be talking about, I mean, I'm like, that doesn't mean anything.
1: No, it doesn't. Just think about our search history.
0: Oh my god, yeah. Well, and also, like, his work history at a funeral home and him having a tattoo of Hannibal Lecter. I mean... Hannibal Lecter tattoo is dumb but okay he worked at a funeral home and one person said like oh he told me he really liked cutting people up but that doesn't really have anything to do with this so
1: no I get that and it would be like tell me if I'm using this correctly but but it would be like a defamation of his character to just bring up all these things that are completely unrelated just because they do look suspicious
0: yeah I think that I yeah So, as the trial starts moving forward, jury selection begins, but right after that, Wilson accepted a new plea deal. He pled guilty to first-degree manslaughter of Mackenzie Cowell, as well as first-degree robbery for taking her phone and second-degree assault for, like, an unrelated case, and he was sentenced to 14 years and three months in prison. He fully maintained his innocence. He said that he only pled guilty because he did not think he would get a fair trial. And he later filed a motion to withdraw his guilty plea, but the Washington Court of Appeals rejected it. Today, he is in prison. He is at the Clallam Bay Correction Center, and he is scheduled to be eligible for parole starting in 2023.
1: So not, not too far from now
0: not too far from now it makes me wonder what kind of i don't know i'm just confused it seems like from the outside his dna being on the tape near like on her body or around it and her blood being in his apartment i'm not i'm not really sure why the prosecution not only gave him an initial plea deal but gave him this second one because it kind of sounds very Not open and shut, per se, but...
1: Yeah, I can see how it could get a little bit hairy, because they were classmates, and so this is a stretch, but say they, like, I don't know, happen to, like, touch each other, or brush, brush up against one another, or, like, hug, or, like, something like that, to where some of his DNA happened to be on her, and then happened to be on the tape.
0: Well, I mean, you do use duct tape for wigs... At least drag queens do. I don't know if normal people do. But at an academy of hair design and stuff, maybe, you know, that's how you put wigs on a mannequin. So maybe there could have been the argument of, like, well, yeah, they would share duct tape because they were classmates for their, I don't know, wig stands or something.
1: Yeah, I mean, as much as I want to say I'm convinced he did it, I'm not. I have a lot of questions. There's not really a ton of evidence against him. It seems relatively circumstantial. And so... Maybe that's why no. they, they did a second plea deal where it was like, okay, we at least would like to get him in prison on something, but I'm not, I'm not super convinced that he did it. This is when it gets so complicated because these seem circumstantial and some lean on the like circumstantial borderline actual evidence kind of thing.
0: Yeah. It's hard. It is. But that is my case. That is the murder of Mackenzie Cowell.
1: I hate that. She literally just had to run an errand.
0: Yeah. She was this 17-year-old working her ass off. Yes. Killing it. And then she was murdered.
1: She had so much potential. She was going places. She was. These are heartbreaking ones because they're so recent that it just like.
0: Oh, yeah. I mean, she was 17 in 2010. I was 17 in 2010. She was my age.
1: I hadn't thought about that. That's just... Yeah.
0: So, Brittany, what case did you pick for your murder from the 2010s?
1: The case I'll be talking about today is the Delphi murders. The sources I used, an article on A&E's real crime by Laura Barcella, and an article on WRTV ABC Indianapolis by Katie Cox. On February 13th, 2017, so recently...
0: Yeah, very recently.
1: There were two friends, Liberty Libby German, who was 14, and Abigail Abby Williams, who was 13, went for an afternoon walk in Delphi, Indiana.
0: Oh, I hate your case already.
1: We knew it was going to be horrible.
0: I know, but, and I know in mind Mackenzie was only 17 and that was hard enough, but god damn it.
1: So they happened to have the day off of school. It was like a snow makeup day. They were in the eighth grade and they wanted to go out and take some photographs. Totally get it. Been there. That's very much a thing that you want to do with your
0: friends. You're going to go take some fun photos. you are like, I'm going to get my new Hollister shirt I got. We're going to go take some pictures in the park for my new profile picture. Exactly. I mean, 100%.
1: So Libby and Abby were dropped off by a family member near Delphi's scenic Monon High Bridge. This happened to be an abandoned railroad bridge that went over Deer Creek. So it's one of those like really long, narrow, dangerous bridges that cross the river.
0: Whenever I think railroad bridges, I just think stand by me. And even though I've never seen it, everyone knows that scene.
1: I've never seen Stand By Me, so I'm sure I know the scene, but I I don't. Did you know that Stephen King wrote that?
0: I did. I did. And it's one of his books that's like... In a book. Really? That's a Stephen King
1: book? It's actually called The Bodies.
0: Well, I just don't... Because Stand By Me is more of like a coming of age film, not a horror film slash book.
1: Eleven twenty two sixty
0: three 63 is not horror either but i'm just saying stephen king's like coming of age books always kind of i'm like oh that's unexpected even though i know he has a few they technically i guess is non-horror
1: i know i was about to say coming of age technically it is a coming of age book
0: okay it is also apparently one of the most terrifying books ever
1: but yes that scene Railroad tracks are never a good sign honestly no Libby posted a Snapchat photo of Abby walking across the deserted railroad track shortly before 2.15 p.m. on this day that they went out.
0: I hate that. That is one thing that, I mean, really, yeah, it's been around for maybe 20 years, but like really, really been around for maybe the last 10, but social media and how it's interwoven in murder cases when... Even something as like the last place someone checked into on Facebook or their last Facebook status or, I mean, oh my god, that, it it just, it takes it to a whole nother level of real and like personable.
1: Yeah, when you were telling me that they were looking at Mackenzie's social media activity after she went missing, it's so real. Like, that's one of the things that is so creepy, I I think maybe is a good word, Just or, or surreal. That's a better word. Mm-hmm. That's so surreal about cases that are more recent is how ingrained social media can be and how it's used as a tool to find evidence and find location. Like, yeah, maybe this part may sound a little creepy, but for the most part, it's easy to find out where anyone is at any time. Yeah. Okay. So now I'm about to get in the part of my case where... We all know we don't want to hear it, but here we go. So a few hours later, Libby and Abby didn't show up to the meeting spot. You know, one of their family members had dropped them off. They were like, meet me back in three hours. And they never showed up. Calls to Libby's cell phone went unanswered and then eventually straight to voicemail. So it's that super scary, oh shit, her phone died. Like at some point in, in that, trying to get a hold of her, her phone died.
0: Oh, God.
1: So at the beginning, her family is, like, their families began the search. When later that afternoon, they were still missing, that's when family members were like, okay, no, we need to contact the sheriff's department. We need to call the police. We need help. So that evening, police officers really didn't have reason to believe that the girls were necessarily in danger. At the time, they thought that maybe they got lost on the trails. They were in the woods, And they couldn't find their way back. So they just needed to search for them. So this was a search and rescue.
0: Okay. So when you first said police didn't think they were necessarily in danger, I was like, are you telling me they're not even going to really start looking? But no, you know, like, they're probably lost. Like, let's search. Let's like still put a lot of resources into it.
1: Yes, it was a we're still doing a search. But there wasn't like the oh, my God, are they being held captive in a cabin by someone? Kind of thing.
0: Okay, that makes more sense and makes me feel better. Because when you first started saying that, my blood pressure rose.
1: (laughs) Yeah, no, totally. Sorry for the misunderstanding. They were still concerned. They are still full on doing a search. And also, dozens of volunteers started helping looking for the girls. At this point in time, when they're searching, the only real clue that they had as to where these girls were was the photo that Libby took of Abby on the bridge. She had posted it, like, on social, it was on her Snapchat, people knew where that was, and that was around, like, 2.15, so that was their last known location.
0: Gosh, it also just makes me think of, like, if I disappeared with my phone, I hope one of y'all would think, oh, let's get his iPad and turn on Find My iPhone. Definitely. Well, because even when it dies, it'll still show, like, last known location, I think.
1: Oh, I don't know, I've never... Had that happen. I don't let
0: my phone die. I don't either. I've been inside since February. My phone hasn't died.
1: So around midnight, the official search party did stop for the night, but their families kept searching all throughout the the night hours. And then the next morning, February 14th happened to be Valentine's day. The search continued. This second day, the search party widened their search area. And because of that, It wasn't long until they found something. At around noon on the 14th, the girls' bodies were found by a volunteer searcher about half a mile from this abandoned bridge where they had last been spotted through the Snapchat video about 24 hours earlier. It was like 22. However, one of the big things in my case, and we don't normally do this, but details surrounding how the girls were found or their cause of death have never been released by the police. So we don't know. There were autopsies performed. There is information. But because this happened so recently, again, this was in 2017. So this is, you know, almost four years ago, you know, come February 2021. It's still an active investigation. And so the police, they have said, they have vocalized that there are things that they know that they are keeping close to the vest. They are not sharing these. Because they're things that only the killer would know. And there's still opportunity to catch him. And that is one thing that is really important to know. Like, especially for us, when we're doing our research and we're like, oh, we can't find this. There's always a reason. There's always a reason why the information is not there, especially in an unsolved case.
0: Yeah. Well,
1: and oftentimes I
0: feel like in a good portion of our cases, most of the what happened to them, how they died really is only uncovered timeline-wise during the trial. Yes. And when we're presenting the cases, you know, trials already happened, so we're not going to hold it up until then. We'll say it, you know, in the beginning when their bodies are discovered. But if there hasn't been a trial yet and that hasn't, you know, come to light, like, come to public and police are keeping it close to their chest because... You know, like you said, that's informational and the killer would know when they're using it as a tool to find the killer.
1: That's one of the things, you're right. We never talk about it, but a lot of the times the details come out during the trial. Sometimes, depending on the case, we do know information beforehand. And I think this was more so in like older cases that we do when you've got the reporters who are, or the journalists who are reporting detailed information, because we've all read those articles. But when it comes to more recent cases, you're right. They hold that until the trial because it's it's evidence. So this Snapchat image that Libby posted of Abby, it led some media outlets to dub this case the Snapchat Murders, which really? I hate that. Yeah, it was one and like that's not what they're really known as thankfully. That was like one of those names they tried to do and it thank God didn't succeed. But yeah. soon after Libby posted that photo. Investigators believe that the girls were approached by a man. They assume he was a stranger to them. And this ended up being the man who went on to kill them. This is the assumption that they've made. So there's key evidence that they have been using in this case. And it's a video that Libby took likely right before their deaths, right before something happened. Like that moment when you could see something wasn't right and she started to record. But investigators have never given the exact context of this video, but they did say that they were taken during a suspected criminal activity. So we don't really know everything that's happening in this video or how long it is or what all is said, but we know it's suspicious. Mm. In the few days after the murders, Libby was seen as a hero by the police because she had that that forethought to take a video. Like the fact that there yeah. was evidence, you could tell she knew in that moment she needed to record it. Yeah. Since then, investigators have released two really grainy still images from this video. And it shows a man. And we think that this man was behind the girls on the bridge. Like maybe she turns her phone and she's kind of like, discreetly trying to record him following them. And both of these images depict what can be seen as the same man. He's wearing blue jeans, a blue coat, and a hoodie. So about five months into the investigation, Indiana State Police released their first sketch of the suspect. That first composite sketch was created after police received information from witnesses who said they were in the area around the time that Libby and Abby went missing. So in this sketch, the suspect was described as a white man between 5'6 and 5'10, about 180 to 220, with reddish-brown hair and an unknown eye color. Which, Tyler, to be honest, sounds like I just described you. Uh,
0: my pupil is just <laughs> dilated. I'm like, I've never <laughs> been to Indiana. Okay. I mean, it also describes a very general white man in the Midwest. It does. And my hair's dirty blonde, not reddish brown.
1: It does. So that's the thing. Like, this description, yes, now you're like, okay, it's a white guy, but you knew that from the photo anyway, so (laughs) what did we really learn? Not much
0: but when you were describing it it's like um in the description he also hosts a podcast with his sister um he drinks a lot of wine he has more animals than he feels like he should but he loves them all too much um and i'm like ah, ah, I don't do it. okay
1: this this is like a suspect description not a dating profile
0: what's the difference honestly some of the time
1: that's fair so two years later, actually more than two years later, on April twenty second, twenty nineteen, Indiana State Police released a new piece of audio from this video, and they had they had released one previously, but this one was a little bit extended, and you can hear someone saying, "Guys, down the hill." So previously, they had released an audio that was just the phrase "down the hill." And when they released this extended one, adding the phrase like guys in front of it, a lot of people were really confused because it sounded like two different voices. Like one person is saying guys and the other person is saying down the hill. Because again, we're only getting the audio clip. We're not actually seeing the video. And so the police were like, no, no, no. This is the same person. It's the same voice. Keep in mind that the person talking, it's one person. He's on the bridge with the girls. It's not two different people. And at this same conference, the police also released part of the video showing how the man was walking. They wanted to see if anyone recognized his mannerisms, which is a little bit difficult because the way he was walking across the bridge was already a little bit awkward because the the slats were pretty far apart. So he's already like taking big, awkward steps. A second sketch was released at this same press conference on April 22nd, 2019. And this sketch appears to be entirely a different person. And this person is now believed to be that main person of interest. Along with the new sketch, police also updated their description of the suspect to be a man between 18 and 40, who could appear much younger than he actually is. These sketches were composed from two separate witnesses who were in the area and the Indiana state police later revealed that this second sketch that they released, you know, over two years after the crime, it was actually the first sketch that was drawn up. So the, like the one they had released first was the second. The second was the first. So at this point, it's been nearly four years since this, murder took place in February 2017 and Indiana state police say that they still receive new tips about Abby and Libby almost every single day. And they are investigating and vetting every single one of those with the amount of, with the lack of information that has been released. A lot of people are determining that that means this case has gone cold. The police say that that is not true. They just have information that they cannot share.
0: Yeah, I mean, it very much could be like a lot of cases we talk about where the police are like, we know who it is. We just need them to slip up a little bit to get their DNA or to get this one piece of evidence and boom, we've got them. Yeah,
1: and they can't give any information because if that person finds out, then they're fucked. Yeah. Since this is an active investigation, I do want to share the contact information for the Indiana State Police, because if you happen to be in the area and maybe have any information and haven't heard about this case, here you go. So for any tips, you can email Abby and Libby Tip, and it's A-B-B-Y, spell out and L-I-B-B-Y, spell out tip at dot com. The phone number, if you want to go ahead and just give them a call, it's 844-459-5786. And if you just want to contact the Indiana State Police, they can be reached at 800-382-7537. And that's all I've got because this case is one of those that, like I said, the information is limited. It's still active and it's incredibly eerie. Because these girls, we know something happened. We can see video on social of who we suspect is their killer. And we still can't find him. And that to me oh is God. absolutely terrifying. The fact that someone can be on camera and we can't find that person to to find out if they yeah. even are the killer. Or maybe it was just some random guy that was like, hey, be careful on this bridge. We don't know because we – the police know more than we do, which is how it should be. That
0: is their job. They should always know more than we know. I mean, dear God, (laughs) yeah, we shouldn't know more than them. No. And yeah.
1: Yeah. Libby and Abby, we don't know what happened. And this – this is one of those cases that it is huge in Delphi. This is a smaller town, and this happened, and it's still unsolved. And you've got to know people aren't 100% sure if they're safe. Because they have no idea what I happened mean, and who this is. And and that's always so well, scary.
0: And especially it's these two eighth grade girls being dropped off to go to the, the woods, the park, to take pictures. Like, you wouldn't have any second thoughts about it.
1: No, that's such a normal thing for 13, 14-year-old girls to do, especially in today's age. You gotta take the good photos. I've seen this bridge. It is a long bridge. I get it. You could probably get some beautiful photos of that area.
0: Well, and especially, you know, with the like, okay, meet us back here, you know, at four. They did everything right.
1: I know. So that's my case. That's the 2010s. There you go.
0: Shit. Fuck the 2010s. 2010s was also like when I became a person, basically. (laughs) Went from being like, I'm 17 and the dumbest bitch you've ever met to like, oh, I'm an adult with feelings and thoughts and empathy. Still the
1: dumbest bitch I've ever met. <laughs> Just kidding.
0: Yeah, I mean, yeah.
1: <laughs> Sorry, you set that one up too well.
0: That's my that's my housewife's intro.
1: The dumbest bitch you've ever met. Now, the things about these cases that is always so heartbreaking is, like I said at the beginning, there's this, you feel more connected to them because they're recent. These things are happening right now in our lifetime. And like, I know we know that. And I know a ton of the cases that we talk about have happened in our lifetime, but the further back you go in a case, the more distance you can feel from it. And that's not the case when you talk about things that are recent.
0: Yeah. I mean, the recent stuff, it has that relatability factor where you can not only put yourself in their position, but you can directly compare and contrast to what you were doing at that time, maybe even that same day, because you can remember it. Because it wasn't that long ago. So when you're saying this is happening in 2017, I can flash back to, shit, I, yeah, I know what I was doing in February of 2017. I was living and working in Seattle, like, going about my day. I remember my routine. And being able to compare and contrast it on that level, in addition to the how relatable it is to things you might do or things you, people you know or love might do. It just adds another layer, and it's truly horrifying.
1: Well, and all of this is still so fresh for the people who were directly yeah. affected by it. Family of the victims, like, it's it's fresh information. I,
0: I mean, they were 13 and 14, and today they'd be 16 and 17.
1: I know, and when you look at it from that perspective, yeah, there's a difference, but at the same time, it's like... It's not like we're saying they'd be thirty-five.
0: No, it's they're still teens in school. They would still be Snapchatting. Maybe now they're TikToking. But that's that's how fresh, how recent it is.
1: The fact that they were using Snapchat is one of the things that, like, I'm like, oh shit! Number one, Snapchat's been around a lot longer than I realize. But I'm like, oh, that's something I was doing in 2017. I'm sure.
0: Well, damn! This case, the 2010s. The 2010s. Fuck them. But if, instead of fucking the 2010s, (laughs) you say, you know, but I did enjoy this episode. It was a lot, but, I, you know, it was a good one. Then, why not head over to Apple Podcasts, rate and review us, give us those five stars. Or, if whatever podcast listening platform you choose to listen to us has, like, a rating scheme or that kind of thing, do it there. Do all the things. But, yeah, let us know uh, what you think. Give us those five stars. We absolutely love hearing y'all's reviews they touch us and make us cry i think a lot more than y'all would assume
1: <laughs> and while you're at it be sure to like and follow us on social we're on instagram facebook and twitter
0: and with that this is blood and wine signing off
1: xoxo bye you guys bye den